On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. To learn more, subscribe to their newsletter, Possibilities, and discover the work Templeton supports on topics from curiosity and kindness to evolution, black holes, and the origins of life. Sign up at templeton.org forward slash possibilities. The psychiatrist Bessel van der Kolk is an innovator in treating the effects of overwhelming experiences on people and society. We call this trauma when we encounter it in life and news, and we tend to leap to address it by talking. But Bessel van der Kolk knows how some experiences imprint themselves beyond where language can reach. He explores state-of-the-art therapeutic treatments, including bodywork like yoga and eye movement therapy. He's been a leading researcher of traumatic stress since it first became a diagnosis in the wake of the Vietnam War and from there was applied to other populations. A conversation with this psychiatrist is a surprisingly joyful thing. He shares what he and others are learning on this edge of humanity about the complexity of memory, our need for others, and how our brains take care of our bodies. You know, I think trauma really does confront you with the best and the worst. Huh? You see the horrendous things that people do to each other, but you also see resiliency, the power of love, the power of caring, the power of commitment, the power of commitment to oneself, to the knowledge that there are things that are larger than our individual survival. And in some ways, I don't think you can appreciate the glory of life unless you also know the dark side of life. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Bessel van der Kolk is a professor of psychiatry at Boston University Medical School, and he helped found a community-based trauma center in Brookline, Massachusetts. As medical director there, he works with people affected by trauma and adversity to reestablish a sense of safety and predictability in the world and to reclaim their lives. Bessel van der Kolk was born in the Netherlands. His own father spent time as a religious prisoner in a German concentration camp during World War II. I spoke with him in 2013. I always start my conversations with this question, whoever I'm speaking with. Um, I'm just wondering, was there a religious or spiritual background to your childhood? Yeah, multiplicity. My parents were fundamentalist Christians in some good and some not so good ways. And as an adolescent, I spent a fair amount of time in a monastery in France called Taizé. Oh, you did? <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. So you went to Taizé just... Because I loved the music. Yeah. You know, this field you're in of trauma, traumatic stress, nowadays, this language is everywhere, right? Um, this language of trauma and traumatic stress has made its way into culture, movie, TV scripts, the news, public policy discussions. I've read a few different accounts of how you stumbled into this field. Where, How do you trace the beginnings of your research into traumatic stress? Well, um, it starts in a very pedestrian way. Uh, you know, I'm a psychiatrist from a generation that it was generally recommended that people have their own, own heads examined, which I think is sort of a good idea <laughs> yes. if you try to help other people. So psychoanalysis was the way to do that back then, and the only program that paid for that was the VA. Mm. So I went to work for the VA for the same reason that soldiers go to the VA, namely to get their benefits package. Okay. And this uh, was in the 1970s? Is that right? It was in the 1970s, yeah. 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 
And like many of my colleagues, I was just there too. It's a step in my career. Mm. And then the very first person I saw was a Vietnam veteran who had terrible nightmares. I happened to have studied nightmares up to that point. Mm. I'd done some sleep studies and that. And I knew a little bit how to treat it, so I gave him some medicines to make the nightmares go away. And two weeks later, he came back and I said, uh, so how did the medicines work? And he said, I did not take your medicines because I realized I need to have my nightmares because I need to be a living memorial to my friends who died in Vietnam. Mm. And that statement was the opening of my fascination about how people become living testimonials for things that no longer exist, but they need to hold it in their hearts and minds and bodies and brains. And uh, the loyalty to the dead, the loyalty to what was, uh, just blew me away. And the veterans really touched me very deeply, both for what they had done, how ashamed they were about what they had done, uh, how they went in idealistically, how they came back broken, Mm. how they relied on their comrades. And they reminded me, I think, of the, the uncles and my father, who I grew up with. Mm. in the Netherlands after the Second World War. So it, it resonated with me. And, and at that time, I believe there was no formal connection made between military service and problems after discharge, right? This well, diagnosis hadn't happened? Well, it, it comes and goes. You know, I became quite interested in the history of how Western culture has looked at trauma. Yeah. And people were very aware of it in the 1880s and after the Civil War and during the First World War and during the Second World War. And then in between, it gets forgotten. And so the way the, the time that I got into the field happened to be a time of ignorance again. Uh, but after these the things Vietnam come and go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my understanding from your writing is that this diagnosis of PTSD, the term we use now, came about because of post-Vietnam War advocacy. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so later on, I became aware of all sorts of colleagues who had been working with abused kids and rape victims, and they had been trying to get a diagnosis in. And Mm. um, that group was too small to have any political clout. And it's really the Vietnam veterans that brought this in and the power of the large numbers of psychiatrists and patients at the VA Mm -hmm. that was strong enough to make it an issue and a diagnosis. So I think that language you used a moment ago about that first veteran you spoke with, that he was a living testimonial. Um, to his memories and to something that had happened, which no longer was happening, but utterly defined him, right? This mm. is a good way into how you define trauma. And so I'd like to spend a moment on that. I mean, s- start with me. You know, how, how do you describe what this is, trauma, as you deal with it, as you study it, as you treat it? Yeah. Well, what I think happens is that people have terrible experiences and we all do. And we are a very resilient species. So if we are around people who love us, trust us, take care of us, uh, nurture us when we are down, most people do pretty well with even very horrendous events. But particularly traumas that occur at the hands of people who are supposed to take care of you, if you're not allowed to feel what you feel, know what you know, your mind cannot integrate what goes on. Mm-hmm. And you can get stuck on the situation. So the social context in which it occurs is fantastically important. Something that's very interesting to me in how you talk about trauma, the experience of trauma, what it is, is 
is how the nature of memory is distorted, that memories are never precise recollections, but that in general, as we move through the world, um, memories become integrated and transformed into stories that help right. us make sense. But that when in the case of traumatic memories, they're not integrated and they're not even really remembered as much as they're relived. That's correct. Mm-hmm. That's actually a very old observation. You know, it was made extensively in the 1890s already by various mm-hmm. people, including Freud. And that's really what you see when you see traumatized people. You know, these days now the trauma is a popular subject. People say, tell me about your trauma. Right. But the nature about trauma is that you actually have no recollection for it as a story, in a way. Many victims over time get to tell a story to explain why they are so messed up. But the nature of a traumatic experience is that the brain doesn't allow a story to be created. And here you have an interesting paradox that it's normal to distort your memories. Like, you know, I'm one of our other five kids, when we have a family reunion, we all tell stories about our own childhood. Yeah. And everybody always listens to everybody else's story and says, did you grow up in the same family as I did? Right, like, there are five every, versions you know, of every yeah, story. Like, there's yeah. all these very, very different versions, and they barely ever overlap. So we, we, people create their own realities in a way. Mm-hmm. But it's so extraordinary about trauma is that these images or sounds or physical sensations don't change over time. Uh, so people who have been molested as kids continue to see the wallpaper of the room in which they were molested, or these, uh, when they examine all these priest abuse victims, uh, they keep seeing the silhouette of the priest standing in the door of the bathroom and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so it's these images, these sounds that don't get changed. So it's normal to change. My old teacher, George Valian, did a study that you may have heard about. It's called the Grand Study. And from 1939 to 1942, they followed the classes at Harvard every five years, and it's going on to this day. Most of them went off to war in 1942, and almost all of them came back in 1945, and they were interviewed. And then they have interviews in 1989, 1990, 1991. And it turns out that the people who did not develop PTSD, which is the vast majority, tell very different stories, let's say, in 1990 than back in 1945. Huh. And so it now is a glorious experience and it was a growth experience and how cool it was, how close they were to people and how patriotic they felt. And it's all sort of cleaned up. Right. Um, but it's, beca- it it's become nice. a coherent narrative. But it's very coherent yes. and it's a nice story and it's good to listen to it. And the relatives have all heard it a million times but right. because we make happy stories in our mind. People who got traumatized continue to have the same story in 1990 as they told back in 1945. Right, right, right. So they cannot transform it. So if we treat pe- when we treat people, uh, you see the narrative change. And people start introducing new elements. I compare it very much to what happens when people dream. Maybe dreaming is very central here, actually, in that the natural way in which we deal with difficult stuff is we go to sleep and we dream, and the next day we feel better. It's very striking mm-hmm. huh, how mm-hmm. we get upset and then say... Go to move to Florida one more day in Boston in the winter, and <laughs> the next morning you wake up and you shovel out your car, and everything's fine. Everything's fine. And so, you sleep is a very important way in which we restore ourselves, and uh, that process of that restoration that occurs during REM sleep, dream sleep, is probably an important factor in why traumatic memories uh, do not get integrated. 
and also that gets at the fact that it's not just cognitive, right? It's not just a story that you could tell. I mean, it may eventually become a story, but that it's body memory. It's a right, you know, right. it's a neural yeah. net yeah. of memory. Yeah. It's not just about words that you can formulate. Yeah. It, it's amazing to me how, for the hard time, many people I know have with that, that this is not about something you think or something you figure out. This is about your body, your organism, having been reset to interpret the world as a terrifying place and mm. yourself as being unsafe. And it has nothing to do with cognition, with, you know, um, you can say to people, you shouldn't feel that way mm. or you're not a bad person or it wasn't your fault. And people say, I know that, but... I feel that it is. Right, right. Uh, it was very striking um, in our yoga study because we see yoga as an, one important thing that helps people who've been traumatized because they get back into their bodies. Yeah. How hard it was for people to even during the most blissful part of the yoga practice called Shivasana, uh, what a hard time traumatized people had at that moment to just feel relaxed and safe mm. and feel totally enveloped with goodness. And it's, uh, the sense of goodness and safety disappears out of your body, basically. Mm. I want to talk about yoga in a minute. That's really... Yeah. Um, and I mean, as you said, I mean, people were talking about this in the late 19th century. Freud talked about it in... I mean, I guess his phrase was hysteria. But something that you seem to have noticed early on is that traditional therapy was ignoring this sensate dimension of um, right. of these experiences. And trying yeah. to reduce it to talk therapy, which absolutely didn't fit with the experience. Right. Uh, there's a few people here and there uh, in the last 150 years who do it. Uh, the great Frenchman Pierre Renaud did. Uh, Wilhelm Reich, of course, who then went crazy afterwards. Uh, mm. So here and there people notice the somatic dimension of it. But by and large, I think psychology training really breeds attention to the body out of people. Right. Even medical training. Uh, like, yeah. It's amazing. Psychiatrists just don't pay much attention to sensate experience at all. Mm. Um, Antonio Damasio, yes. in, in his books, The Feeding of What Happens in books like that, really talks about our core experience of ourselves is a somatic experience mm -hmm. and that the function of the brain is to take care of the body. Mm. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a minority voice. It's a small voice. But it, it, it seems to me that that what we're learning from brain imaging is bearing out um, these kinds of observations? I mean, are, are, yeah. yeah, what are we learning? Are, are, is well, any of this but, surprising? What we see is that the parts of the brain that help people to think clearly and to observe things clearly really get interfered with by trauma. And the, the, the imprint of trauma is in areas of the brain that really have no access to cognition. So hmm. it, it's in an area called the periaxial gray, which sort of has something to do with the sort of total safety of the body. Um, uh, the amygdala, of course, which is the smoke detector, alarm bell system of the right. brain. That's where the trauma lands and trauma makes that part of the brain hypersensitive or renders it totally insensitive. And the, the Broca's area? Well, in, in our study and some others, uh, I mean, that for me, that was really the, the great finding early on, is that uh, when people are into their trauma, Broca's area shuts down. And that is something that almost everybody has experienced. When you get really upset with your partner or your kid, um, suddenly you take leave of your senses and you say horrible things to that person. Mm. And afterwards you say, oh, I didn't mean to say that. 
Uh, well, the reason why you said it is because Broca's area, which is sort of the part of your brain that helps you to be uh, to say reasonable things and to understand things and articulate them, shuts down. So when people really become very upset, uh, that whole capacity to put things into words in an articulate way disappears. Right. And right. for me, that is a very important finding because it helped me to realize that if people need to overcome the trauma, we need to also find methods that bypass what they call the tyranny of language. Right. Don't ask people to be verbal, to verbalize it. Or to be reasonable. Right. <laughs> like right. the, the trauma is not about being reasonable or to be verbal or to be articulate. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with psychiatrist Bessel van der Kolk. He's a leading innovator in the treatment of traumatic stress. So it seems like there are all these impulses that we have that we're working with all the time that get so out of whack with trauma. And so, I mean, I've understood that it's not just that we have memories and that we process them in different ways, but also that we are constantly rationalizing, that we have this impulse to rationalize. But then when people are traumatized, um, they are actually, they also have this impulse to rationalize and then become unable to grasp the irrelevance of of that memory and that feeling to the present moment. Yeah. yeah, so we have these two different parts of our brain, and they're really quite separate. Huh? So we have the, our animal brain that makes us go to sleep and makes us hungry and makes us turn on to other human beings in a sexual way, stuff like that. Um, and then we have our rational brain that makes us get along with other people in a civil, civilized way. These two are not all that connected to each other. And so the more upset you are, you shut down your rational part of your brain. When you look at the political discourse, everybody can rationalize what they, what they believe in and talk endlessly about why what they believe is the right thing to do, mm-hmm. while your emotional responses are totally at variance with seemingly rational behaviors. We can, we can talk to the boon in the face, but if our primitive part of our brain perceive something in a particular way, it's almost impossible to talk ourselves out of it, which of course makes sort of verbal psychotherapy also extremely difficult because mm. that part of the brain is so very hard to access. Yeah, we're pretty fascinating creatures, aren't we? <laughs> fascinating, disturbing, <laughs> yes. glorious, all those things. <laughs> all yeah. those things all at once. <laughs> right. So yeah. I, I do want to talk about yoga now, which is which is something very important to me as well, something mm. I've discovered in the last five or six years. And uh how did you get interested? How did you discover yoga and then make well, that part of this kind of work? We actually got into yoga in a very strange way. Uh, we learned that there is a way of measuring uh, the integrity of your reptilian brain, i.e. Um, how the very most primitive part of your brain deals with arousal. And you, you measure that is with something called heart rate variability. And that tells you something about how your breath and your heart are in sync with each other. And it turns out that the calmer people are, the more mindful people are, the higher their heart rate variability is. And then we were doing that on some time with these people, and we noticed that they had lousy heart rate variability. And then I thought, so how can we change people's heart rate variability? And is this something you'd n- naturally be aware of or not? You wouldn't No, you wouldn't but know you, can me- you can measure it, and it's fairly okay. easy to measure it. Okay. Like, there are like apps for your iPhone okay. um, <laughs> on which you can measure them. But, of course, we do it in a more sophisticated way. Um, 
And so we found this very abnormal heart rate variability in traumatized people. And then uh, we heard that there were 17,000 yoga sites that claimed that yoga changed heart rate variability. And the, a few days later, some yoga teachers walked by our clinic and said, hey, do you think you can use this for some project? And I said, we sure can. We'd love to see if yoga changes heart rate variability. And this whole yoga thing also fit very well with the increasing recognition that traumatized people cut off their relationship to their bodies. Right. And I have to give a little bit of background here. Way back already in 1872, Charles Darwin wrote a book about emotions, in which he talks about how emotions are expressed in things like heartbreak and gut-wrenching experience. So you feel things in your body. Yeah. And then it became obvious that if people are in a constant state of heartbreak and gut-wrench, they do everything to shut down those feelings in their body. Mm. One way of doing it is taking drugs and alcohol. And the other thing is that you can just shut down your emotional awareness of your body. And so a very large number of traumatized people who we see, I'd say the majority of the people we treat at the trauma center and in my practice, uh, have very cut-off relationship to their bodies. They may not feel what's happening in their bodies. They may not register what goes on with them. And so what became very clear is that we needed to help people for them to be feel safe feeling the sensations in their bodies, to start having a relationship with the life of their organism, as I mm. like to call it. Mm. And so a combination of events really led us into exploring yoga for that. And yoga turned out to be a very wonderful method for traumatized people to activate exactly the areas of consciousness, um, the areas of the brain, the areas of your mind that you need in order to regain ownership over yourself. Okay? Mm -hmm. I don't think that yoga would be the only way to do it, or uh, I think if you only do yoga that you can totally take care of it. But yoga, to my mind, is an important component on an, of an overall healing program. Mm -hmm. And again, not only yoga, you could do maybe martial arts or qigong, uh, but something that engages your body in a very mindful and purposeful way um, with a lot of attention to breathing in particular, resets some critical brain areas that get very disturbed by trauma. Do you also have a yoga practice? I also have a yoga practice. Uh -huh. I, I do uh, not enough, of course. None of us ever does enough. But I try to start every day with a yoga practice. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And did I read somewhere that you also found that your heart rate variability was not um, in sync and was not <laughs> I robust like to keep enough? I about it. That's, that's true. <laughs> that's, that's true. Uh, yeah. And do you know if yoga has helped your... Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, uh, nice, nice even heart rate variability. Now. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if you have ever heard of somebody named Matthew Sanford, who I've had on my program. He's actually no. He's a yoga. He's a very renowned uh, yoga uh. teacher. He's been paraplegic since he was thirteen. Oh, uh -huh. and he had no memory of the accident in which he was um, disabled, and his his body remembered it. I mean, he talks about body memory. It's the same thing you say. This imprint that trauma has, not just on mm. your mind, and. Uh, the other thing that he's doing recently is actually working with veterans and also working with um, young women suffering from anorexia hmm. and, the, and understanding also that although that seems to be so much an obsession with the body, 
they are really in a traumatic relationship with their own bodies. And um, some of the yeah. things he was doing, which he actually did for me, I did a class with him, like just putting uh-huh. these very comforting weights, you know, on certain uh-huh. muscles. And you, so you feel sunk into your body in a way. And I don't know, yeah. I just was thinking, I've been thinking about this as I've been reading about your research. Huh. It sounds very sympathetic and very right. Huh? Yes. Um, these sensory experiences of feeling weights and feeling your substance. Um, yes, you know, feeling your substance, I, which is yeah, bigger than yeah. just feeling a weight on your muscles, isn't yeah. it? I mean, it's no, really feeling, feeling your body move and, and the life inside of yourself mm-hmm. is critical. And you know, personally, for example, for when people ask me, so what sort of treatment? Have you explored? I always treat, explore every treatment that I explore for other people. Um, what's been most helpful for me has been rolfing. Has been what? Uh, um, rolfing. The rolfing is is um, called after either Rolf. Uh, it's a very deep tissue work where people sort of uh, tear your muscles from your fascia, and with the idea that at a certain moment your body comes to be contracted in a way that you habitually hold yourself. Mm -hmm. And so your body sort of takes on a certain posture. And the idea of rolfing is that you really open up all these connections and and make the body flexible again in a very deep way. I I had asthma as a kid. I was very sickly as a kid. Mm. I was part of the group in the Netherlands, in the the final year of the war in the Netherlands, uh, during which I was born. About 100,000 kids died. Uh, from starvation, and I was a very sickly kid, and I think I carried it in my body for a long time. And rolfing helped me to overcome that, actually. Mm. So I now I got a body; it became flexible and multipotential again. And for my patients, I always recommend that they see somebody who helps them to really feel their body, experience their body, open up to their bodies, and. I refer people always to cranial sacral work yes, or Feldenkrais. Yes. And yes. I think those are all very important components about becoming a healthy person. They're, you know, but they're not that easy to find. They're, they're still kind of around the edges, um, yeah, Feldenkrais and cranial sacral. Um, isn't it strange how in Western culture, in a field like psychotherapy, or even I see this a lot in religion, in Western culture, we turned these things into these chin-up experiences. We yeah. we, we we separated ourselves. Yeah. We divided yeah. ourselves. I, I I see this. I mean, yoga is everywhere now, right? It's um, yeah. and people are discovering all kinds of ways, as you say, there are all kinds of other ways to reunite ourselves. But uh, but but it, it's true, you know. Western culture is astoundingly disembodied yeah. and, and uniquely so because you know mm-hmm. because of my work I, I've gone been to South Africa quite a few times and China and Japan and India and you see that we are much more disembodied and the way I like to say it is that we basically come from a post-alcoholic culture have people whose origins are in Northern Europe had only one way of treating distress mm. as namely mm. with a bottle of alcohol mm. and I North American culture continues to to continue that that notion. If you feel bad, just sw- take a swig or take a pill. Mm-hmm. And the notion that you can do things to change the harmony inside of yourself is just not something that we teach in schools and mm-hmm. in our culture and our churches and our religious practices. Um, and of course, if you look at the religions around the world, they always start with dancing, moving, yes, singing. Yeah. Crying, and intense laughing, physical yeah. Yeah. experiences. Mm-hmm. 
And then the more respectable people become, the more stiff they become somehow. short break, more with Bessel van der Kolk. And you can find this show again in three of the libraries at onbeing.org, Science and Being, Healing and Trauma, and Brain and Neuroscience. Listen to this show and everything we do on Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with psychiatrist Bessel Fender Kolk. He investigates state-of-the-art therapeutic treatments, including bodywork like yoga and eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy, or EMDR. I also would like to ask you just about this EMDR. Because hmm. I had not heard of this before. Um, oh, really? You know, I uh-huh. hadn't. So, no, EMDR well, is yeah. a, a bizarre and wondrous treatment. <laughs> and anybody who first hears about it, and myself included, thinks this is pretty hokey and strange. It's something invented by Francis Shapiro, who found that if you move your eyes from side to side, as you think about distressing memories, uh, that the memories lose their power. And because of some experiences, both with myself, but even more with patients of mine who told me about their experiences, I took a training in it. Uh, turned out to be incredibly helpful. And then I did what's probably the largest NIH-funded study on EMDR. And we found that of people with adult-onset trauma, so one-time trauma as an adult, Mm -hmm. that it had the best outcome of any treatment that has been published. And so what's intriguing about EMDR is both how well it works, and then the question is how it works, Mm -hmm. and that got me into this dream stuff that I talked about earlier, and how it does not work through figuring things out and understanding things, but it activates some natural processes in the brain that help you to integrate these past memories. And, I mean, it sounds so simple, and even when I was reading about it, moving your eyes back and forth, um, I mean, is this something you can do for yourself, or is there something more complex going on? Um, I imagine it can be done, but it's usually better if you do it with somebody else who sort of stays with you, helps you to focus, makes the eye movements for you um, by uh, having somebody else follow your fingers. Right. Uh, but it is astoundingly effective treatment. And it's interesting that even in the most biased studies, uh, EMDR keeps coming up as this very effective treatment. Uh, it's been very difficult to get funding to find out the very intriguing underlying mechanisms of it. And I think if we really find out the mechanisms for EMDR, we'll understand how the mind works much better. Mm. It's an astoundingly effective treatment. And so if people have had one uh, terrible thing that they cannot get out of their mind, that for me is the treatment of choice. Mm. Um, Of course, the people who come to see me in my practice oftentimes have had multiple traumas at the hands of their 
intimate also. So then it gets much more complicated than just a memory issue. Uh, But if it's just a car accident or a simple assault, it's astoundingly effective. Mm, It's fascinating. Something else I read is you were reflecting on Hurricane Hugo, and and, and hurricanes in general were natural disasters. This this phenomenon we see of people helping each other, of getting out there and helping each other. And you also look at that and see that it's not just that people are helping each other, that they're moving their bodies. Again, there's this physical involvement as an, mm. kind of as an antidote to the helplessness of the situation, yeah. which is so manifest. Yeah, 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 good. I'm really glad you read it. Um, because, you know, people talk a lot about stress hormones and how stress hormones are sort of the source of all evil. Um, that's definitely not true. You know, stress hormones are good for you. You secrete stress hormones in order to give you the energy to cope under extreme situations. So it gives you that energy to stay up all night with your sick kid or to shovel snow in Minnesota and Boston and mm-hmm. stuff like that. What goes wrong is if you're kept from using your stress hormones. So if somebody ties you down, if somebody holds you down, if somebody keeps you imprisoned, the stress hormones keep going up, but you cannot discharge it with action. And then the stress hormones really start wreaking havoc with your own internal system. But as long as you move, you are going to be fine. (laughs) And so, as we know, know, after these hurricanes and these terrible things, people get very active and they like to help and they like to do things and they enjoy doing it because it discharges their energy. So we are healing uh, ourselves. We don't realize yeah, well, that. We're we're using we using our natural yes. system, basically. Mm-hmm. It's not only healing, we're coping. We're just mm-hmm. dealing with what we need to cope with. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why you have that stuff. Right. That's why we survive as a species. Right. And so what is disturbing in, in Hurricane Hugo, which is my first encounter with it quite a long time ago, and what we saw again in New Orleans, is how these victimized populations were prevented from oh, doing right. something. And that's really what the and observation was. And that compounded was. the trauma. Yeah. So I, I get flown into Puerto Rico after Hurricane Hugo because I've written a book about trauma. I knew nothing about disasters, but nobody else knew anything either, so they flew me in. And what struck me, I land in Puerto Rico, and everybody is busy doing stuff and building things, and everybody's too busy to talk to me because they're trying to do stuff. But on the same plane that I flew in with, Officials from FEMA came in who then made announcements, stop your work until FEMA decides what you're going to get reimbursed for. Right, right. And that was the worst thing that could have happened because now these people were using the energy to fight with each other and to pick quarrels with each other instead of rebuilding their houses. And that's, of course, similar to what happened in New Orleans where people also were kept from being agents in their own recovery. Mm. I wonder how you look at this world we live in now where it feels like there's an acceleration of what you might call collective traumatic events or tragedies. It seems to be more and more predictable that around the corner there will be a bombing or a school shooting or a a terrible event that's involved with the weather. How does what you know about trauma help you think about this? or I'm not sure if I share that view with you. Mm-hmm. I think there's so much more news, so we are much more aware of whatever happens at any particular moment. And of course, the news media, when you wake up in the morning, find the worst thing that happens somewhere in the world to serve it to you for breakfast. And so we get served much more. I don't think there's more trauma. 
actually. You know, when I you don't think more re- bad things happen. You just when think I read, you know, mm-hmm. how Abe Lincoln grew up. Right. You know, he lost his mother, and they moved their houses all the time, and they were starving, and he was he had nothing. I mean, you read the stories about all the immigrants, all these people who died, and and the number of assaults in New York City and around yeah. the country. And no, I I don't think we live in the in the worst world, and I think people are also much more conscious today than they were, let's say, hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Now, I really have studied the history of trauma. You know, my favorite human folly is the First World War, if you think the world is bad right now. Right, right. Think about the First World War, like, right. unbelievable. So I don't think things are, are necessarily worse. And I think, you know, when I, when I go around the country and I see the number of programs that very good-hearted people have for school kids, etc., I'm continuously astounded by the amount of integrity and creativity and goodwill that I see everywhere around me. At the same time that you see something as horrendous as that in Philadelphia, the school system of the public schools in Philadelphia abolished arts programs, gymnastics, counseling, and music programs. And I go, where have these people been in order to have a mind that focuses you need to move your body. Right. You need to sing with other people. And mm. if you think that your kids are going to do better, if you keep them stock still in a classroom taking tests, <laughs> you don't know anything about human beings. Like, and so you still hear about horrendous things all the time. But I see a great deal, great deal of consciousness at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I see that people are really trying to carve out more consciousness and more democracy in various places around the world. Right. I mean, you're right. It's all these things at once. I mean, yeah. but let's say um, something I'm aware of is how, and this would be different from the First World War era, where we, we get these pictures, these vivid images with this immediacy brought to us, yep. right? And I yeah. personally, and I mean, I think this is true collectively, too, I don't know what to do with those images, right? And and what I often, I mean, it's it's so disturbing and then... And then there's also this impulse that you you just have to cut yourself off from that feeling, right? Because you yeah. I can't do anything for that particular picture. Um, and then there's this guilt and this feeling that that's not a satisfactory reaction. I mean, it's all together. Well, you know, see, there's there's a very dark side to it to this also, and that is that there's a certain tropism, a movement towards misery in our lives. So yeah. that if things become too quiet. It becomes boring, and people go, you know, when you see the preview of coming attractions in the movie theaters, you go like, oh, my God, what are these people watching? You know, that people are drawn towards horrendous stuff all the time. Right. And so um, it's part of that dark side of human nature to to want to live on that edge. Yeah. Know? It's very hard. You know, it's very hopeful that you spend your life on... Um, Working with trauma, with victims, and th- in this research, but you have a pretty refreshingly mm, a hopeful feeling about us as a species. Well, you see, part of that I get from my patients. You know, what is so gratifying about this work is that you get to see the life force. Mm. People go through horrendous stuff everywhere all the time, and yet people go on with their lives and. And you um, see that, you experience that. I, I again see it all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I see very kids who grew up under terrible circumstances, and some of them do terribly. But then, so last week had a, we had our conference here, our annual conference in Boston, and somebody presented her work on doing uh, meditation in 
maximum security jails. Mm. And you see these really bad-ass guys uh, come to life because of this meditation program. Mm. And, you know, I see people getting better with uh, another program that I'm involved with is a Shakespeare program uh, for juvenile delinquents here in Berkshire County where the judge gives kids a choice between being going to prison or being condemned to be a Shakespeare actor. And, you know, I go to the Shakespeare program and these actors do a beautiful job with these kids and you see these kids come to life as they're being valued as an actor and a person who is able to talk. Mm. Um, what I see is the huge potential that people have to crawl out of their holes. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with psychiatrist Bessel van der Kolk. I read your research, and I, I think about this whole picture that we've been discussing of all the different ways people are reaching out for methods uh, to become more self-aware. Mm-hmm. Um, yoga, meditation, yeah. using these insights of neuroscience. Um, sometimes I wonder if, you know, 50 years from now or 100 years from now, um, people might look back on therapy, <laughs> the way we did it, we've done it for 50 years or whatever, and see it as a really rudimentary step towards a much more profound, you know, reaching for awareness and consciousness, mm-hmm. mindfulness. Well, you know, I think people have always done good therapy. Huh? And our culture and our insurance structure is not really geared towards really very good therapy, nor is our psychological training, which is there to fix people and get rid of their disorder as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. But therapy as in people really getting to know themselves very well and examining themselves and being seen and being heard and being understood um, has always been around... And I think it will always be around. Um, And I don't think we'll ever talk about it as necessarily primitive Mm -hmm. because the intimate interchange of people really talking about their deepest feelings and their deepest pain and having persons listen to it it has always been, and I think always will be, a very powerful human experience. So, So the language people sometimes use about trauma would be, you know, there's a lot of spiritual language um, that we intuitively grasp for, you know, soul stealing. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder how you think about the human spirit in the context of what you know about trauma and resilience and healing. That's a very tough question. I know. <laughs> uh, I think you're up to it, though. Something that I've of, uh, tended to stay away from. But, um, you know, I think trauma really does confront you with with the best and the worst. Huh? You mm-hmm. see the horrendous things that people do to each other, but you also see resiliency, the power of love, the power of caring, uh, the power of commitment, the power of commitment to oneself, uh, to the knowledge that there are things that are larger than our individual survival. And some of the most spiritual people I know are exactly traumatized people because they have seen the dark side. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, I don't think you can appreciate the glory of life unless you also know the dark side of life. Right. And I think the, my traumatized people certainly know about the dark side of life, but they also, because of that, see the, the other side better. 
think you, you said somewhere that PTSD has opened the door to scientific investigation of the nature of human suffering. Ah. That's a profound step, right? I mean, that's, that's, I, to me, that's a spiritual way to talk about this field with a profound understanding of what the word spiritual means. Yeah. Well, you know, I think this field has opened up two areas. One is the area of trauma and survival and suffering, but the other one is also um, people are studying the nature of human connections and the connection between us, mm-hmm. also from a scientific point of view. As much as trauma has opened up things, I think the other very important arm of scientific discovery is how the human connection is being looked at um, scientifically now. And what really happens when two people see each other, when two people respond to each other, when people um, mirror each other, when two bodies move together in dancing and smiling and talking. Um, There's a whole new field of interpersonal neurobiology that is studying how we are connected with each other and how a lack of connection, particularly early in life, has devastating consequences on the development of mind and brain. And it's true, isn't it, from your study that that if we, if people learn to inhabit their bodies, um, to be more self-aware, that that these qualities and habits can serve, can create resilience, can serve when trauma hits. Is that right? Absolutely. And there's two factors here. One is the how your reptilian brain, if you breathe quietly in your body and you feel the, feel your bodily experience and stuff happens to you, you notice that something is happening out there and you say, oh, this really sucks. This is really unpleasant. But it's something that is not you. So you don't necessarily get hijacked by unpleasant experiences. And the, the big issue for traumatized people is that they don't own themselves anymore. Any loud sound, anybody insulting them, hurting them, saying bad things, uh, can hijack them away from themselves. And so what we have learned is that what makes your resilience to trauma is to own yourself fully. And if somebody says hurtful or insulting things, you can say, hmm, interesting that person is saying hurtful and insulting things. Um, but you can separate I, your sense of yourself. Yeah, but from you can se- separate yourself from yeah. it. And and we, I think, are really beginning to seriously understand how human beings can learn how to do that, to observe and not react. Mm-hmm. I think I just want to come back as we as we close to this idea that somehow the, the point of all of this, the take home for you, and I'm, I'm not finding the quote is. That we have to feel safe, that we have to feel safe, and that we have to feel safe in our, that has to be a bodily perception, not just a cognitive perception. And that somehow everything comes back to that. (laughs) It it is the foundation. And... um, but you need to, you need to actually feel that feeling, and you need to know what is happening in your body. You need to know where your right toe is and where you where your pinky is and where your bite body. You need to sort of be aware. It's very nitty gritty. Uh, what's doing? That what it's saying? very very yeah. basic. Yeah. Now, um, you know, but but sorely lacking in our diagnostic system is simple things like eating and peeing and pooping because that is. They're the foundation of everything, and, <sighs> and, and, and breathing. Like, you know, these are foundational things. 
all of which go wrong, but you get traumatized. The most elementary body functions go awry when you are terrified. Yeah. And so trauma treatment starts at the foundation of a body that can sleep, a body that can rest, a body that feels safe, a body that can move. And I love the example of your guy who's paraplegic and who does yoga, because even when your body is impaired, you can still learn to own it and to have it. Yes. You know, he says he's not cured, but he's healed, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and here's a striking statement you've made, um, that victims are members of society whose problems represent the memory of suffering, rage, and pain in a world that longs to forget. Did I say that? You did. That's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And I, 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 yeah. I find that so worthy of reflection. Well, you know, that's the literature we read. That's the movies we watch. And that's what we want to be inspired by. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what we observe, is that spirit. Toni Morrison and Maya Angelou and these people who can talk very articulately about having dealt with and stared adversity in the face and still maintain their humanity and faith. That's what it's all about. Bessel van der Kolk is the founder and medical director of the Trauma Center in Brookline, Massachusetts. He's also a professor of psychiatry at Boston University Medical School. His books include Traumatic Stress, The Effects of Overwhelming Experience on the Mind, Body, and Society, and The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Marie Sambalay, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Aaron Colasacco, Kristen Lin, Prophet Adewu, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Damon Lee, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Siri Grassley, Nicole Finn, Colleen Check, and Christiane Wartell. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent production of the On Being Project. It's distributed to public radio stations by PRX. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind, learn about cutting-edge research on the science of generosity, gratitude, and purpose at templeton.org discoveries. The Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality, supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at calliopeia.org. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives 
and the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.